Psychomatics and Hi Moguls. Today we have a very special guest, Michael S. Emerson. We are going to learn how to finance films. So, so I really want you to listen to the podcast. But first, I just want to introduce you um, to Michael. He is a uh, writer, producer, creator, director of shows like Newsmax, TV series, and American Moment, and American Life. And he's also the producer director for History Channel, six hour television miniseries, Vietnam in HD, and History's Historic Emmy Award winning 10 part series, World War II in HD, and then the two hour special, The Air of War. Let's welcome Michael S. Emerson to the show. Hi, Michael. Oh, hi, Marilyn. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. <laughs> It was a little big uh, mouthful, but you've done so much, like director, producer, amazing shows on the History Channel. And I just want everyone to know, where are you um, streaming with me live today on the podcast? I'm sorry, I didn't get that last part. Where am I what? Where are you streaming? Where? Oh, streaming? I'm, I'm from my home. I live in Orange County, and uh, I'm sitting in my work area where I write a lot of my scripts. <laughs> Yeah, like most of us, if we didn't return to work, we've been working out of our homes. So we've been doing the Zoom or the Google Meet. And um, so today, you know, um, before we get into how to finance films um, for aspiring filmmakers, how do you make films? I first wanted to start with like, you know, Michael, growing up, uh, what was one of your favorite films um, as a child that you remember? You know, it's, I, it's difficult to leave it to one. Please understand, I grew up during the Western era. So I grew up with television and, and motion pictures being primarily Western. And because of that, I fell in love with a lot of Western uh, movies such as Searchers, John Wayne, a classic, another one, The Wild Bunch, which is a classic motion picture. But I also, at the same time, I love a picture called The Train, which was Burt Lancaster. It's a black and white. And it's a picture about um, a true story in Paris during Nazi-occupied France, and they were trying to save the, the French artworks from being confiscated by the Germans. As the true stories are very well made, it's in black and white, which always surprised me, but it's an excellent motion picture, so much so I keep it recorded and I periodically look at it. And then I guess my last, to confuse you even more, I, um, I loved the, uh, 2004, 2005, there was a picture called The Legend of Zorro, and it was uh, by Martin Campbell, I think was the director. And what really interested me in that picture, as a director, he had incorporated some really interesting, I thought really interesting techniques, visual techniques, which were not special effects, they were just creative directing techniques. So I periodically watch films like that to re-inspire some of so I can get ideas to copy other people, take all the credit for it, copy other people, you know. Typical producer, director, Hollywood. You know? <laughs> so can I ask you, so The Legend of Zora, what were the directing techniques that you loved in that film? Because I mean, there's, there's actually several. First of all, keep, keep in mind, I'm a producer director. And um, so at the same time, cost of motion pictures, the time it takes to shoot a motion picture, the time it sets for everything else, means something to me and i'll give you one example um, a very simple technique that he used which added a second dimension to his picture and maybe i'm using uh, words that mean something to me and maybe nobody else but in the very opening sequence of it where 
the bad guys are getting ready to kill somebody and they think Zorro's coming to save them. The camera follows two young boys who jump into the back of a wagon and cut open uh, two circles in a, in a canvas wagon that gives them the perspective of what they're looking at. It's a simple, simple technique. It didn't require a whole lot of setup. It didn't require a whole lot of props. And the fact was it gave you a different visual dimension in the middle of all this action. And, and, I, I'll, um, uh, and I, I can convert that to one other thing too. John Ford, the legendary director, certainly before my time, John Ford is a legendary director. But John Ford would do things. If you ever watch a John Ford movie, the difference between his brilliance and the brilliance of uh, other directors is that everything in the movie, everything in the scene told a story. I'll give you an example. There was a, a John Wayne picture. John Wayne is uh, surrounded by an Indian tribe ready to kill. And they're all on horses, right? Well, in a normal motion picture, a normal director, those horses would be standing there with these warriors on top of them, not with John Ford. Those horses were in constant movement, their legs come moving, and it built the energy of, the, of that particular scene so effectively. And I think that that's what you saw in Zorro as well, the very beginning of that, so much action. It's one thing to shoot action. It's another thing to shoot action that actually drives the anxiety up. And it's a technique. And I, I respect that. And I, and I try to learn from it. Yeah. So is, um, is John Ford one of your favorite directors then as well? Or Actually, there would be several. I'd have to say, in, honestly, and the director that's most important to me is, was my mentor. And he's a director that you probably may or may not know. His name was Bert Kennedy. Bert was a writer, director. I uh, did about 70 motion pictures and television shows, a lot of the Westerns. He was classic for that. War Wagon, for instance, Kurt Douglas, uh, Michael, I mean, uh, John Wayne, Kurt Douglas. But Bert uh, was a great guy, a special guy. I did a movie with him. I met him and producing a movie called Big Bad John. And we became close friends and he's passed now. So God rest his soul. But he was really a mentor of mine. I learned so much from him. I, and for your potential directors that are listening to you right now, it's very important for you to direct, you know, to maintain control of a set. That is not very easy to do, especially when you have 60 to 80 people, uh, all of them high paid. And he taught me that technique. And I've only had to use it a couple times, but it was highly, highly effective. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. And um, so what can you share with us your favorite um, director shot or film scene? Again, I go back, but I, I told you a couple of them already. Um, I, it's really, I think what it is, I come from a different um, background a little bit in that as a director, I understand that the, what you see on a film, what you see on a screen, what you see in television, it's not one person. It is, it is a... It's, it's just a, a group of highly specialized, talented people with lighting, for instance. Um, uh, second director, you know, the first director, second director, the budget, the uh, boarding of a picture, which is the planning of a picture. All these things go into that effect. So if you're asking for a specific, I can tell you that. I will tell you that, but you're, you're not, you're not going to be impressed. 
it goes back. I did the, a biography on um, Cecil Mill for the History Channel. Award that won several awards, but the technique he used in 1922 or something like that to part the Red Sea was unbelievable. It was jello and water. And I'm looking at that and I'm thinking that's pure genius. I'm sure there are plenty of unsporting, certainly Spielberg is huge on this everybody else but when you have nothing to work from and you're using gelatin and water and the scene works the scene works it's uh i think that was probably my my best special effect i love that i love that yeah because you you really cited some great examples from john ford and uh well i'm sorry what was the name of the legend of zorro's um director you said martin campbell martin campbell uh, directed that i don't know martin um but I instantly recognize, you know, my, my wife says that I have no fun to go to a movie with anymore. And, and she's right. And I try so hard to, to just sit there, but invariably I'll be, I'll, I'll be looking at something. And I'll go, great shot. Oh, wow. Look at that framing. Oh, wow. You know, and my wife will say, shh, it's true. It is true. It's absolutely true. And I, um, but, but I learned from so much. It, I just see things differently, and it, it doesn't necessarily mean that's good. <laughs> yeah. Um, speaking of, like, Zorro, I actually worked for David Foster, who did Zorro, you know, the modern Zorro at uh, Paramount Studios. He's a very great guy, wonderful guy. Um, he was working on a romantic comedy, and like me, he's like, oh, I already got one working with this writer, but I like yours better. So <laughs> he's really great. I drove him around in the golf cart. I don't know if I was the best golf driver on the lot of Paramount Studios, but you say Paramount? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Was, was it, no, I guess that's not true. So it's the Western set wasn't there anymore when you did it. That was long gone. The old Par- uh, Ponderosa set was gone. It was the whole part of the lot was uh, Virginia City. I used to love going through there, but no, now you have the modern back lot. I've been there. Yeah, I I, um, I went through Dr. Phil's set a lot and met the editor who edited. He was generous enough to edit one of my film, my short films. And so um, I would meet people and, they, and, you know, they gave me stuff for my first film, which I got top 50 director in. I got expendable. So thank you, Paramount. Appreciate them. So so on this journey, like I'm like you, like I love the black and white films and I'm obsessed with Criterion films. Is there a Criterion film that you want to share with us as maybe one of your favorites? Not real. I mean, I, I just can't think of them. There is a particular one. The key about black and white films is the lighting. And I learned um, very early on in my uh, um, career how important lighting is. And you notice it even more so in black and white films uh, than you do uh, color films. And I also want to tell you that this will give you an insight. I work all day on I have several film projects, a television project. I just I go all day. This is a nice break in the day for me. But at the end of the day, how I relax is I have in our my home sort of a big theater, you know, 70-inch television, nice comfortable chair. And I watch old movies. I watch AMC. I watch, you know, Turner Classic movies. I watch the old movies. My wife thinks I'm crazy, but uh, it's a way for me to just relax. 
I, I love I love watching too. My one of my favorites is Federico Fellini, all the Italian directors. When I just watched their incredible, just what they did back then with no special effects, but just like you said, like Cecil B. DeMille used Jello and water. The creativity that you come up with to make these. It's amazing, like, you know, um, and like when we had to use skateboards or grocery carts to do a dolly, and now we have the drones, and I'm like, oh, you have a drone, my neighbors have a drone. I'm like, I'm so jealous in a good way. Can I borrow it? <laughs> they make some nice I did, a show, I did a show on the special effects guy that did uh, Star Wars, and this was a huge, I have, I had a little bit of insight to Star Wars when it was made. It's a huge motion figure, huge success. But they didn't know what they had, and they, their their budget was running out. They're running out of money, and the guy went to the junkyard, and he put together the parts and built R two D two at a junkyard. Oh my uh, gosh, that's brilliant! You know, the stories that Hollywood should be telling, I think. R two D two came from a junkyard. Well, that's good recycling. That's great <laughs> recycling. Great recycling. I love that. Yeah, R two D two and C three PO and all the new characters. I can't even keep up with them. I I mean, I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm so like feeling like, I don't know all these new characters. But um, you know, I love my Chewie, uh, Chewbacca, and just you know the. I first. haven't seen I haven't seen the new uh, episodes. Probably the last two or three I haven't seen. I was mesmerized by the beginning of them. I knew some of the uh, information behind it. I can tell you some insight that. Probably no one will tell you about Star Wars, but um, George Lucas, as you know, that was his his breakout. But 20th Century Fox did not know what they had. They thought they didn't know whether they had the biggest flop of the year or whether they had something special. And they turned to another mentor of mine, who's also passed away. He was a number two man at Disney. His name was a McKay, Dick McKay. And Dick was Dick, Dick. just was in the industry. He was kind of noted to be able to look at a picture and get an idea within ten percent what the picture would do worldwide, which is quite a uh, asset. So they brought him in to look at it. And um, when they finished, Dick, they said, "Do we do this as a wide release?" Now back then, wide release was a way that you thought the picture was bad, and that you would put the money out there and and calling everybody to go see it the first weekend before the word of mouth would kill it and he said no 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 don't do that you have you have a great winner here do this what they call a platform release release it in select theaters let the audiences grow and that's exactly what happened he was he was absolutely correct and the byproduct of that if you remember you, you're probably too young to remember this but there was a burt lankai's uh, burt no uh burt reynolds franchise called uh, um, you play the, the bandit, the bandit, the, the yeah, smoking the bandit. Smoking the bandit was a low grade, inexpensive picture that Universal had made in as a requirement to do a Burt Reynolds movie. Burt wanted to help his friend, a director, and um, whose name will come to me in a moment, but. Bert said, if you want me to do these other pictures, I want to do this picture with my friend, the director. And they said, okay, it was, it was a contract requirement. Well, what happened was the other movies that Universal, MGM, Paramount, and the rest, when Star Wars took over, they couldn't stand that competition. So they took their least, least, I don't want to say favorable, let's say least, the pictures they didn't like very much, and they put them out there 
in contrast to Star Wars, because they had to deliver movies to theaters. They had a contract. They had to deliver theater movies. And so if one series of theaters had Star Wars, what were the rest going to play? Well, Smoking the Bandit filled that gap. And that's what made Smoking the Bandit so successful, is that it was the only picture they could put into theaters that uh, opposite Star Wars. And so meanwhile, just, just by the mere fact of people, and you go, went to a theater. I remember the, uh, I saw Star Wars twice. I saw it as a studio um, premiere at the studio, private showing. And then I, I had a date, and I, w- I went to see it. And I remember in Westwood, you go to it, and you couldn't get in. The theaters had lines around the block getting in. And therefore, they filled the other seats with Smoking the Bandit, and that gave life to a legend that uh, went on for three or four pictures. Yeah, it's interesting how, like, like how, like when you saw that movie, how could you just ask someone, like, oh, is this going to be good? Like, how are you in the business at a studio and you don't know if a movie's good or not? Like, nobody does. Nobody, honestly. Like, Star Wars, if you would have saw the first cut of Star Wars, you're like, wow, this is awesome. Like, how could you not come up with that? Like, you know what I mean? Because there was. But there was nothing else there that liked it. It and doesn't so, and matter. It doesn't matter. Is, you got to know good from bad. Like, I mean, that's what I take. Because, like, I, I was a reader for all these producers, and every single script that I told them was a winner was a winner. So I had the gift of knowing. So I guess I'm like your friend at Disney. I'm like your McKay. They got to come to me. You can pay me. I'll tell you whether or not it's be good or not. Because I have that gift. And not only that, I wrote scripts that would be almost identical to the scripts that they made at Disney or studios. And then everyone goes, isn't that like your script? So I have that gift. Like I definitely have that gift. So anyone wants to ask me, is, consult me I've got that gift. <laughs> I just no, do. It, I just do. Some it, of us do. It, it is absolutely a gift. Yeah. Um, and I say that with 100% confidence because I, I read for, I was a literary junior agent. I read for producers and production companies. I read their scripts and they would ask me which ones and they would call me on Saturdays and Sundays when I wasn't working to read scripts and give them notes. So I've, you know, I've done this for years and, um, you know, but you still, we're all working. We're all working on our craft. We're all hoping to get monetized. And by the way, if everyone's listening, can you please hit the subscribe and five stars? And please subscribe to my YouTube channel. Just click in the um, summary below. Thank you so much. And so, um, so, so this is really interesting. I love it because you know so many people. And so it comes to, so I love Criterion and you have all these, like the train. I'm going to watch the train. It sounds amazing. And I want to see the lead. I want to see the legend of Zorro because we, on here, we have so many people. We always ask for your favorite director shot for director tips because we're always like, we always like to talk about our, our favorite film shots, directing shots, and our favorite scenes for movies. But, um, so I want to ask you, Michael, where did you grow up? Oh, did you grow up in L.A. or Orange County? I actually, I actually grew up in uh, Beverly Hills. Okay. And I attended um, Beverly Hills Catholic School and then moved on to Beverly Hills High School. I went to school with Richard Dreyfus and Rob Reiner and um, trying to think of a slew of others. And, uh, but I didn't really get into the, to the film or television industry. My degrees are in marketing and advertising. And um, I got into the media industry because back in 79 or something, I created a radio program. And the radio program was called Face to Face. It was an interview program with leaders of entertainment, business, finance, everything like that. And, um, and that program, that was my radio program. 
It started on 12 stations. And then I grew to 126 stations in the U.S. And then eventually I was picked up overseas and I went to 697 stations in 41 nations. And the show was uh, heard every day, five days a week. But it was a, it was a, what they call a five-minute slot. It was three minutes of content, two minutes of commercial. That's, that's how I got started. That's amazing. Uh, now, Michael, I want to ask, I want to tell everyone first that Michael sent me, thank you, Michael, Mastering the Art of Media Messaging, Media Professional Michael S. Emerson. So um, is this, you, can you get this on um, Amazon or, you know, online, your book? Yeah, yeah. It's, on, it's at the Barnes & Noble, it's on Amazon, it's everywhere. It's all there. Yeah, it's an amazing book and sign. Thank you so much, Michael. I want to ask you, Michael, um, with... Uh, you know, you were, I guess your uh, radio was big back then. There was no such thing as a podcast. So I want to ask you, is there archives or where can they listen to those if they wanted to look up your radio shows? It isn't. They, they're not available for listening. Um, I have. Uh, it's an interesting thing because I have, I have like 300 interviews with, with people like Menachem Bacon and Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan and Donald Reagan and and. and Shirley Temple and Bob Hope and people like that. And I am, I was just driving about this. I was driving yesterday thinking about this is all stored. And I, I keep thinking I've got to, I've got to coordinate this. I want to donate it to like the radio museum for future uh, broadcasters to work on, but you cannot hear it. Oh, well, maybe I can help you get it on the podcast and make a podcast for you. Maybe we can work on that. So it could, could well, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll send you. I have your address. I'll send you the demo tape that was made for the radio stations, and that'll give you an idea. And then you can. I, I don't really understand your field. I wish the guy used to telling my some people the other day. I wish to God when I was starting out, they had podcasts. I would have loved that. But yeah. right now, my head is full of just motion picture intelligence stuff. Well, maybe um, you know, we'll talk about off camera. But like, what are, uh, let audience, if you like, please comment if you'd like to hear some of Michael's recordings. Maybe he'll let me showcase them like once a month or something on Filmatics or Girls Guide to Investing. And I just want to share something with you, Mike. That Michael, are you? Can we share this with you? One of your interviews, you you were doing all these great interviews. Can you share with our audience the queen that you got? Can you tell me tell them that story? You're the queen. Oh, oh, the queen. Yeah. Well, first of all, we're talking about the Queen of England. Yeah. Uh, uh, queen queen Elizabeth. Queen. So what happens is this is a very interesting for your audience from the standpoint the power of media. Media is probably the most powerful thing ever created uh, by man or mankind. It is so powerful and it opens so many doors and does so many things. So what happens is, I, I need to point out to you, I'm Irish. My mother was born in Ireland and um, raised in England and then came here when she was 17 years old. So she's very proud of her Irish heritage. Um, my radio program was heard all over the world and I would be periodically the, the British consul, probably the British embassy in Washington, D.C. would constantly call me and say, look, when the next time you're in Washington, we have so-and-so here, Lord so-and-so here, the exchequer, which is their uh, treasury secretary. We have all these people, would you like to interview them? Of course. So I had a, um, I, they were a great source of information for me. So one day I get a request and it says the Queen uh, Queen Elizabeth II is um, coming to Los Angeles en route to meet with President Reagan at his ranch in Santa Barbara, 
would you like to have lunch with her? And I said, <laughs> and honestly, you have to understand, it's supposed to, I, 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 of course, said yes, but I also was very, very, very busy. And um, as it turned out, that uh, my wife, they couldn't clear her, they couldn't clear her on her, her, uh, um, her security because they had wrong information and, and I wasn't going to go without her. And she told me, she looked at me and she said, she said um, that my mom would, would want me to go. So I went, I met with the queen uh, on board Britannia. Uh, it was a little bit, it was in San Diego Harbor. It was an incredible experience. Britannia was an incredible yacht, 290 feet long, just absolutely beautiful. And at the same time, uh, when uh, my, my mother had died about a year before. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I was taken in to see the queen, the queen's back was to me. And it was a little bit dreary outside, a little drizzly. And so I'd, I'd come up with something, you know, to say. And when she turned around, I, I swear to you, and I, I swear to your audience, she was the spitting image of my mother, the spitting image. She wore, she had, my mother always wore a glove, a glove of the left hand, the person left hand, the, the color hair, the chair, the light complexion, the deep blue eyes she had. And when she turned around, keeping in mind my mom had just passed, I almost grabbed her. You know, you can't touch the queen. And I wanted to just hug her and say, Mom, I, I mean, I'm telling you, I'm serious, dead serious. And then I caught myself and I said, welcome to California, Your Majesty. And I looked outside, it was raining. I said, as you notice, we've, we've brought your weather with you so you feel at home. And she laughed and she said, I was trying to get away from that weather. <laughs> that's, my, my, that's my story with the queen. Oh, I, 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 I should add, if I have a, a second, I'm looking for my clock here. Oh, yeah, we, if, have, we uh, got about like five minutes. So I want to ask you, so the, the yacht was... Let me just, just add this one thing I have to tell you. So when the queen leaves, I turn to leave, right? I turn to leave, and there's a... The queen travels, or with Britannia, her own destroyer, and she has all of the... She has a helicopter, her limousine, and all the, the sailors have special insignias that say, you know, her, the, her royal crest. So I turn around and there's this young man. He's, I'm six feet. He had to be six two, six three, And he had to be like 18, 19 years old. He's holding this silver tray. And on it are these little bottles of Schweppes um, ginger ale. And I turn around and her eyes meet. So I'm looking up at him. And he's looking down at me. We don't say anything for about 15 seconds. And I look at him and I say, you realize there's no way I'm leaving this ship without something. <laughs> and he says without missing a beat, he goes, and you'll notice, sir, that's why we removed all the silverware. <laughs> Absolutely true. Anyway. Uh, well, I got to ask you, so the yacht was 293 feet. What did you have for lunch? Are you allowed to share with us? What did you dine on? Do you remember what you ate? I don't. I was so taken with uh, with her. I was there with a couple of the media people. Bruce Hershenson, a friend of mine, was there. Bruce's uh, past, but um, it was a beautiful day. And and I to this day. And by the way, I have at my home in my in what we call the the man cave. I had gotten an invitation, and the invitation. I know this by heart. The invitation says, "The head of the household has been commanded by Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II." 
invite you for lunch on board the Royal Yacht Britannia. Business attire required. I remember that. What kind of attire? What kind of attire did you have? Business attire required. As if I was going to show up on a Speedo or something. Oh, I don't know. I, I like, what do you wear? At least they told you. Like, uh, was it like tea and crumpets? Was did you have delicious cake? We're like, I'm such a girl. Like, no, did you it, have it tea and more, crumpets? No, no, it was it was like a, a typical lunch of sandwiches and stuff like sandwiches. that. Sandwiches. Oh, how nice! Like flowers and everywhere, the decorations and stuff. No, well, it was just beautiful. What a beautiful like that like that she heard, like obviously they heard your um, your radio shows and you did such great interviews. So you did so many with Bob Hope and so many uh, wonderful people. We might have to come back and ask you about that. So we're going to end part one with Michael S. Emerson. Please come back for part two. We might even go to part three because I know our spires are inspiring filmmakers want to hear how to finance films. We have so much fun stuff to talk about because Michael has been in the business so long. So thank you for listening. And remember to subscribe, hit the five stars, and please subscribe to my YouTube channel. It's summary, uh, the information's in the summary. Thank you so much for listening and come back for part two.